Blog Talk Radio. Hello again. We have a full-on political episode in today's installment of the A.J. Bruno Show. My guest in this episode is Bob Ehrlich, a former governor and congressman from Maryland. Good afternoon, and welcome to the show. A.J., how are you? All right. How are you? I'm I'm great. Uh, you forgot as part of my resume, by the way, a member of the state legislature, uh, which was a great job as a young lawyer of the Maryland legislature, and uh, now I'm a partner at the King and Spalding in D.C. Of course, um, definitely was going to ask about that as well. So let's uh, let's talk about your background to start. Uh, not huh? only did you go to Princeton, but you were captain of the football team there too. Uh, did you ever have any professional football aspirations, and what initially inspired you to pursue law to begin with? Uh, great questions. I was a jock, and football has been my ticket like many working-class kids uh, around the country, which is why I'm I'm such a uh, fan of the sport and, uh, and it's, its first defender with regard to the attack now, the war on football, which is a subject maybe we can get into a little bit. Sure. Um, but the football was my ticket as a working-class kid. It got me uh, scholarships to uh, some great schools, including uh, Gilman in Baltimore, which is an elite private school, and then uh, Princeton, and where I was captain of the team. And uh, I subsequently, after after uh, college, became a graduate assistant at Wake Forest Law on the football staff, and that helped pay my way through law school. And uh, I was a, a six foot, two hundred pound linebacker. So to answer your question, there wasn't a great demand for undersized linebackers in the NFL. <laughs> I did, however, think I had a shot in Canada, and uh, had, had in fact thought about going to law school in Canada and then giving a, and playing a year of college up there, and then giving a look as far as the pros. And uh, a, a knee injury at the end of my senior year ended that hope. So. Uh, that's the the, uh, the football story with me. I'm a great defender of the sport. Both of my boys have played. I have a son who's a freshman uh, defensive back at Villanova, and a uh, my eighth grader will be entering ninth grade next year, high school, and he's a quarterback. Oh wow! So before we go on and talk about politics, let's uh, start with football, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I'm also a big fan. Um, go Eagles! So. Uh, I assume yeah, you like the Redskins, so <laughs> bit of a rivalry there. We're um, Ravens here. We're Ravens here. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. You work in D.C., but from Maryland, so that makes sense, right? Um, <clears throat> so I'm not a big fan of the, the current commissioner, and I don't know what your opinion of his is. I'm not a big fan at all. In no. fact, I have written critically of him. I believe – well, a number of the pieces, in fact, I've written concerning the NFL and the commissioner and the state of the sport and the kneeling issues are contained in, in, in my book. So uh, I am a, a critic of, of this commissioner, that's for sure. Sure. I was hoping they would get rid of him, but apparently not. So, um, Well, he's overpaid and underworked from what I can see, but uh, the owners are happy with him. He makes some money, and that seems to be the, the end of the discussion. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think of all the attacks on football with the whole concussion issue and all that? Well, I I think you have to divide the question. Uh, I'm a parent, um, and so obviously safety, it's always safety first with with my kids. Um, But I also am a fan of the sport, and they're not mutually exclusive. I uh, this is one sport where a dad simply can't volunteer. Uh, the, the whole heads-up thing for the NFL is a great thing. The, 
this is a sport where where if dads want to help, they they should I believe need to be certified. I believe teaching kids how to tackle and block and and use their bodies in a pretty violent game uh, necessitates that. So I have no problem with with appropriate coaching, and I have no problem with the weight limits for the younger kids and some of the rules we have for with the younger kids as far as the bigger kids not being able to uh, play outside the box and things things like that. I think it's all good. But what really concerns me is what I see uh, from the left, from the progressive left in this country, which is a sustained war in football. Um, as I said previously, uh, football is really America's sport. It's wildly entertaining. It is a ticket for lots of working class kids to uh, get to college. Uh, forget the pros, and obviously that's a small percentage. But football is used by many, many young men to uh, fulfill their dreams. And those dreams, by the way, are as much academic career as, as athletic. So uh, my, my wife and I have taken the lead. I'm, you can imagine, given my profile and my association with the sport, I'm often asked to engage in conversations, particularly with moms concerned about their kids and the sport, and I, I I tend to have those conversations regularly. But I write about this issue. I give speeches on this issue. I am uh, a fan of the sport, and it needs to be protected from some of the more egregious uh, complaints followed by uh, people who don't know better. No, I agree. It's it's gone too far in a lot of ways, and um, you know, I mean, there's other sports that I think are great too. Obviously baseball but i think one difference would be with football there's only 16 games a season with baseball i'm not going to sit there and watch you know, 162 plus games so uh, i think it's easier yeah. to follow too well and and just i i just think it's great it it, it and i'm a ba- i played you know high school baseball my kids play and, and they're good players and all that and i'm a huge baseball fan as well at the orioles and but football teaches, and it's a cliche, you know that, and everybody knows, but mm-hmm. the cliches are cliches because they're often true, and, and football teaches the kind of lessons I want young boys to learn. And and, and it's just the opposite, actually, of the the indictment lodged against football. It's 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 teamwork. It's, it's working together. It's discipline. It's hard work. It's uh, learning. It's all not about you. It's all good stuff, life lessons. Uh, let alone this sort of uh, you know alpha male, overly aggressive stuff we hear uh, lodged against football. Of course, it's an aggressive game. It's a rough game. It's a tough game. But uh, again, that's that's uh, I think to the extent boys that want to play should be allowed to play. If you don't want to play, great. If you don't, maybe have the physical build as you get older to play. I understand that as well. But what concerns me is kids that want to play can play, have a desire to play, and the parents don't let them. That's that that, that really uh, concerns me these days. No, I agree. That that definitely goes too far. So, would you say any of the lessons you learned um, from football inspired you oh, to yes. actually running the <laughs> run for the house of delegates um or what brought that about and um was it well it, was it easier it, it, running as a republican during the during the reagan years in 86 well your uh, your questions are really logical because uh, they really are related to one another i Great. as someone who grew up in sports very competitive obviously and and something i'm teaching my boys and my wife is equally competitive and she's teaching our boys the same thing um the competitiveness of athletics and competitiveness of politics is, is, is similar. You have you know, long campaigns, long preparation in athletics. You have sort of an end result. You either win or lose on election day. You win or lose on game day. Uh, you learn to win. You learn to lose. You learn to not be defeated in either. 
uh, you, it's very similar, and, and I, I, I really uh, uh, marshaled that enthusiasm I had for competitive athletics into politics. I treated it the very same way my first campaign, where I ran as a wild underdog, an unknown, and upset uh, a three-term incumbent um, because we outworked him. And, and so I, I've taken that same attitude to politics and into life, I hope. That's what I want my boys to learn as well. Hmm. No, that's a, that's a great lesson. So from your time in the state legislature, how was that different running those campaigns and serving in there compared to when you decided to run for, for the House and you know you got in during that huge 1994 wave year? Yeah, uh, another good question uh, because it's, they're, they're similar but certainly different substantively. Uh, or I should say procedurally, as far as the substance, you know, the issues you're dealing with, whether it's guns or abortion or taxes or tort reform or budgets, you name it, the issues are fairly much the same, whether you're in the you're balancing the state budget or you're balancing the federal budget. Uh, the job, however, the jobs are very uh, dissimilar. Uh, as a member of the state legislature, you're part-time. I still was uh, had my real job, I called it at the time, with a law firm in Baltimore. Um, the the uh, It's very hands-on. You actually draft amendments uh, in conjunction with professional staff, but the staffs are not that large. You actually do a lot of hands-on things yourself as a member of the legislature. The staffs are very small. I had one part-time person to help me with constituent matters. That was my entire staff as a member of the Maryland House of Delegates. Obviously, when you go to Congress, you make that leap. Now you're representing 600,000 people or more than that today, obviously, with reapportionment. Uh, you have uh, more than 20 on your staff. You have a very professional casework operation. Uh, foreign policy issues then become more relevant. So uh, it, it's a much larger job. Uh, I loved both. As a young lawyer, I loved being in Annapolis, learning the trade. Uh, going to Congress in '94 with a new majority and Newt and and uh, and some of the initiatives that we we implement at the time, including welfare reform and balanced budgets, and it was just and rebuilding the military. It was really a wild, fun, interesting time. I've always told people they ask me what Congress is like, and I tell them it's a, it's a graduate seminar and things you really want to know about. You learn a lot. Uh, if you're smart, particularly as a young legislator or a young congressman, you sit there and and learn. You don't ask. You don't. You're not a hot dog. You don't. Uh, you're not an independent contractor. You go out there and you you do your job, but you also learn. So, I love those jobs, and I really felt that both jobs prepared me uh, to become governor. Yeah. Well, before we we jump to talk about your your gubernatorial run and your time there, um, one thing that I think they should probably do in Congress is be more part-time and have leaner staff than they do. I mean, the amount of money that seems to go towards that is just huge. I think it's over $6 billion. And in a lot of ways, state legislatures seem to function better than Congress. Well, the the caveat, the observation I would add to you is this. Um, The modern House, particularly, and it's the same way, but the modern House, you don't really have a whole lot of dollars. I think when I was there, it was about a million dollars a year to pay everybody and to run your operation. And I'm talking about that's the salaries came out of that and so you're not people were not getting wealthy uh, uh when you divide that by 22 staff members and all that and office pay office rent uh, and, and and many of these folks are dedicated to casework which is helping people interact with the federal government 
and, and that casework is not going to diminish. So I, I would say I would not diminish the number of caseworkers. People expect government to help them. They get frustrated when government gets in their way. Their social security check is not uh, does not arrive on time. Their veterans benefits, whatever it happens to be, so people have a, a right, a logical right, to expect the government to work for them, not the other way around. No, that makes sense. So uh, it was one thing, of course, to have the success you did with with smaller constituencies, but you then decided to run for governor in the 2002 election and win in such a heavily Democrat state that hadn't elected a Republican since Spiro Agnew. Uh, what was your mentality like as you tackled and ultimately won that race? Well, it was pragmatic and realistic. I knew the odds were against us. It was a, and is an overwhelmingly democratic state, but not just democrat. It was also uh, liberal. It was left of center, and today even progressive in many respects. So, I knew our our work was cut out. I did have the advantage of having a safe seat in the house. I had a really good base to run from. Uh, uh, working class Democrats were part of my political base, as they are for President Trump, as they are basically for any conservative Republican these days. I knew I could leverage that into crossover support in the uh, general election campaign. The Republican Party coalesced behind me. We raised a lot of money. We ran against Bobby Kennedy's daughter who was a formidable person, obviously, as a sitting lieutenant governor, and uh, executed a very strong campaign plan uh, and, and, and won and, and maintained very high approval numbers throughout my tenure, although we lost the re-election in a uh, wipeout year in 2006. Yeah, that was, a, that was a rough one. So for those of us who hadn't yet had the privilege of being in a role like governor, uh, can you describe what it's like to be entrusted with a position like that on a day-to-day basis? Uh, another really good question because it's different. I thought I was a pro. I was a vet, even though I was in my mid 30s. I had, I'm sorry, my early 40s at the time. Uh, I had been in politics, elected politics, office for 16 years, state, federal. I had engaged in debates. I had traveled the country for candidates, been with presidents and all that, and, and then boom, one day you're elected, and, and the next day you realize it's just you. You're not a member of a legislature. You're not, uh, you're not just wearing a uniform of a party. You're the team captain again. It's you. It's your administration. It has your name attached to it. You make the appointments. It's your cabinet. It's your budget. You'll be judged accordingly. And so it's a different ballgame. It's a different ballgame. I've met a lot of smart people in politics who have legislative mindsets. They should stay in legislatures. I've met people in politics who have strong executive mindsets. They should run for county executives and governor and president. So it's a very different skill set in my view. And and uh, again, although it was daunting, I, I felt I was prepared for it, but it is very different. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of your biggest achievements, of course, was signing the Chesapeake Bay Restoration Act. Yeah. Um, I read that blue crab populations are still declining, though. So all this time later, do you think it's had the desired effect, or what more should be done? Well, it's quite, well the oysters are coming back, and the crabs go back and forth. Uh, sometimes you have banner years. A lot of the crab health is related as much to the type of winter you had, whether young crabs died with the, with the frost. Uh, whether hurricanes came up the bay, uh, unrelated to pollution, unrelated to phosphorus and, and nitrogen. Uh, 
Uh, we were very successful with the Chesapeake Bay uh, Restoration Act. We upgraded our sewer treatment plants around the watershed. Uh, it was a it was it was a good thing for for watermen to the farmers. We we gave the farmers uh, dollars for cover crops so that the, the, the runoff would not be running into the bay. Uh, I'm, uh, as I go around Maryland today, a lot of people thank me. Uh, the, the bay is certainly not saved, but it's in better health, far better health than it was 20 years ago. Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Uh, I described my bill as the most significant environmental initiative in 20 years, and and they were right. It was a, it was a good thing to do. It was the right thing to do. It's helped save our bay. Again, the oyster population is being replenished, and that's very important as well. No, it's such a fantastic natural resource. So it was definitely a, a big achievement you had. Well, it's also you know people don't realize people see it as an wholly environmental issue. It's a huge economic issue in Maryland. Just we talk about the, you know, the the watermen, the crabbers, and but we the, the Ocean City itself, uh, the boating in in Maryland is a huge recreational sport. Fishing. Uh, so it, it's not just a uh, environmental issue; it's a it's an economic engine driver. There's a lot of money spent in Maryland as a result of of a cleaner bay, and, and that's all that's all to the good. No, yeah, both tie in that definitely helps. So, as a lawyer, obviously you know about all the horror stories we hear about uh, people being falsely convicted based on flimsy evidence that yep. doesn't amount to beyond you know beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, you had a very progressive, in a good way, uh, attitude towards clemency as governor. How did that sort of outlook come into fruition for you? I People ask me that all the time because it's a major part of my legacy. I, I've, I've written about it. I, I lecture on it widely. Um, and we were doing it when no one else was doing it in, in the uh, early part of the millennium, in uh, 2003 to 2007. We were granting pardons, commutations, looking at lifers, looking at situations where maybe somebody shouldn't be in jail for as long as they were in jail, looking at situations where uh, 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 people were uh, uh, overcharged, quite frankly. Now, I'm not talking about innocent situations here. Innocent is innocent. And with DNA and now modern science, you have people exonerated. That's easy. That's the easy stuff. Somebody's exonerated. You know, what states typically do is give them some money and say, I'm sorry. And and that's not good enough, but that's all really you can do in retrospect. I'm talking right. about the more difficult lifer cases or people who overcharge or people simply who wanted another uh, restart in life who had gotten into a bar fight or maybe had a DUI or a drug conviction at an early age, and now 10, 20, 25 years later they're trying to get a, a security clearance at at National Security Agency. And they have that that uh, – that, that mark on the record and, and needs to be uh, expunged. And we did. We did it in, in large numbers, and, and we looked at every case and thoroughly vetted every case, and we would have monthly meetings. And, and so pardons and commutations, and particularly with regard to employment, collateral consequences, it's a major part of my legacy, something I'm very proud of. No, that's great. And that's something which I think particularly from a, a conservative point of view, too much is put on – I would say the punitive aspect of it, and not so much on how do you sell That's it. That's a very good point. It's yeah. a very good point. And look, I, I'm I was pro I am pro capital punishment. Uh, two I had two cases go all the way uh, as governor. I did not commute those sentences at the end. Um, they were executed. Um, so I think it's not liberal conservative. It's justice. You truly, I think the definition of what governors do, presidents do, is justice. You try to do justice. 
And to the extent you find the criminal justice system unfair in some respects, you can't cure every problem. Um, but you can, as a governor, particularly in this state with a lot of power, uh, uh, exercise that power to achieve justice. And, and we did. And, again, I'm very proud of that part of our record. Great. So similarly in the law enforcement side of things, uh, one issue which I think is a problem in many places would be traffic ticket quotas. Um, that's often abused by uh -huh. police stations, obviously, for profit and to meet those numbers. But you did something. And cameras, and cameras, yeah. speed yeah. cameras, uh, big that's brother. It. Yeah, it's so. um, again, it, it what that stuff does is generate disrespect for the law and law enforcement. I am a big law enforcement advocate, support the police, support the blue. But this kind of stuff, they're just it's just money makers for government and it's wrong. Mm. Oh, definitely. So one of the, the big controversies you dealt with was uh, with the Dubai Dubai Ports World issue, um, which obviously impacted your state with Baltimore being one of the targeted ports. Uh, when you heard about this plan, were you immediately opposed to it, and what concerns you about a UAE company potentially being in control there? It was just um, – again, you have to – we talk about criminal profiling, which is wrong. Oh, well, criminal profiling, which is correct, uh, but ethnic profiling, religious profiling, racial pro uh, profiling, obviously wrong. It was uh, post 9/11. It was just a concern. It just it was a source of concern uh, post 9/11. We didn't know what we were dealing with. Obviously, uh, we have some uh, some great Sunni allies now in 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 the in the Middle East. We have for years, uh, um, but uh, it was something I thought that need, needed to be looked at, uh, given the tenor of the situation, given the fact that for the early part of my administration, I believe it was called Code Orange. Uh, which is a heightened sense of uh, there's probably going to be a, a uh, likelihood of a, of a terror attack in the United States. I, one day I, uh, on, on, the, uh, on, on, on a leak, not a leak, on a, on a call from the FBI, I closed down the, the Harbor Tunnel in Maryland, a major thoroughfare, for a number of hours because the FBI told me they had reason to believe there were four guys on their way potentially blow up that tunnel. Jeez. So, you know, it, it, it's something that, uh, and I'll just say this with regard to that time and still this time, the first uh, responders to show up at the Pentagon were, was the local fire department. I mean, local government and state government were the front line. You know, we, we pay the Marines, we pay the, the Army, we pay everyone, our great soldiers to go uh, fight the bad guys and kill the bad guys in foreign lands. But when mm -hmm. it comes to the homeland, we obviously have the FBI and, and law enforcement, but governors and local uh, uh, law enforcement and local county executives are really the front lines. Uh, first responders means first responders, and they are local. So that, that reality really hits you in, a, in the terror era, in the post-9-11 era. No, that makes sense. So the the city of Baltimore is um, outside of the Inner Harbor, which I think is really a beautiful area, but it's Gorgeous. not exactly yeah. the safest in other parts of the city. Um, what's been the issue with getting that their act cleaned up, and what would you suggest doing? About oh, jeez. Um, well, I write about this. There's some essays in the book, and we, by the yeah. way, we, the, the book is called "Bet You Didn't See That One Coming." Um, there's some essays about Baltimore in the book, uh, and about uh, some of our. Problems with with our cities. Um, Baltimore, I'm a Baltimore kid. It, it makes my heart uh, hurt to see what Baltimore is today. Uh, you've had flight, race flight, class flight, failing public education in many respects. 
You've had industrial era jobs dry up um, in the post-industrial era. You've had a, uh, a, a horrific uh, onset of, of uh, a drug abuse, a drug epidemic, small gangs, uncontrollable, very violent, and gun violence break out as a result. You, and a lot of people are scared. And a lot of poor people are scared, and they can't move, and they're trapped. And it, it makes your heart bleed to see, uh, again, you have high property taxes, again, uh, lack of jobs, people will not relocate jobs. It's, it's a vicious cycle, and I've written about it extensively, called for some, some uh, radical changes, and radical property tax relief, and radical new sort of policing, as, as, as Giuliani successfully accomplished in New York. So um, it, it's a problem, and I see a lot of politicians talking past the problem, uh, but it, it's a real problem in cities like Baltimore. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Um, so one of the other big issues during your administration was the so-called Walmart bill. Um, yeah. That was passed despite your, your veto of it, but then it was thrown out in court later. Uh, what was yeah, the whole story behind be. that, and what well, do you think yeah, about that a, one it looking was, back? It was simply uh, Walmart was targeted by me and Maryland's a very uh, union state. Um, the unions at the time uh, did not like Walmart very much. They were non-union. And so they decided to come up with some um, arbitrary threshold with regard to health insurance and made a big deal of Walmart not offering health insurance. And they passed a bill that basically only targeted Walmart, <laughs> and, and and which I knew would, would be thrown out of court. And I re- it was very controversial. Obviously, they got a lot of folks excited about the bill. I vetoed it. Mm-hmm. Um, we I, I, we strongly, strongly thought it would be overturned by the courts, and it was. But it was more a political statement uh, mm-hmm. than anything. It was a union statement. We don't like Walmart, and that's not a very good way to legislate. No, no. I thought there were a few other companies that it affected, too, like Northrop Grumman and a at few At the others. time, I believe, I, at, at the time, if my rem- memory serves me, it was it was basically one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was it was it was it was whether it impacted anyone else or not. It was it was primarily about Walmart. Yeah, talk about a witch uh, because hunt. at the time the unions had a national campaign against Walmart. Yeah. So going into the 2006 election, um, what do you think the factors were that kept you from being reelected? And given that you were only slightly behind in the last polls, what sort of expectations did you have for the outcome of that one? Well, the problem was that we were. Uh, uh, we maintained a pretty high approval rate throughout my tenure, as you as you've seen, and, and if you've done, you know, if you've done your research, but um, that uh, approval number did not translate into reelect votes. It was a very bad cycle for President Bush. Obviously, uh, uh, Iraq was very unpopular at the time. The president was very unpopular. The Republicans were unpopular. And in a blue state, uh, mid 50s, high 50s approval rate did did not uh, uh, was not the ticket to get reelected, and so it was obviously very disappointing. Um, but I certainly uh, left with my head high. Uh, thought we accomplished a lot of what I wanted to accomplish. We turned the budget around in, in a very significant way, as far as the budget deficit we inherited, as opposed to what we left. So. Uh, very disappointed, obviously, extremely disappointed in in, in losing the race, but um, very proud of what we did, and very proud, quite frankly, of, of how popular we were despite despite <laughs> losing the race. Uh, uh, again, as I told you earlier in this interview, we're um, a competitor, a winning counts, losing counts. Um, 
So it was a uh, certainly a turn we thought in the wrong direction for Maryland, but uh, that's what the people voted for. Right. No, I thought that one was a, a real shame. I mean, politicians make promises all the time, but you pretty much kept all of them. And to not uh, be returned for another term, I, I found that perplexing. Well, so do we. (laughs) But you know what? Life goes on, and life's been very good to me. And again, this is my. uh, I I started writing books and continuing to to play a part in the political process. Uh, As someone who's done a lot of, uh, uh, as you know, cable news shows and a lot of speeches and policy speeches and political speeches for candidates around the country. Uh, And now my fourth book. So uh, we're still. Out there doing my thing, although I'm not in elected office. Sure. So you took another shot at governor in 2010. Um, mm-hmm. In the late spring and summer, the race was extremely tight, and you even were ahead in some of the polls. But then the result turned out to be pretty disappointing. Yeah, in the that, end. Uh, was, we got you know, uh, we got just, uh, really murdered in the Washington suburbs uh, with money, and it was pr- not one of my best decisions I've made in my life. But mm-hmm. I did feel, uh, I, as I said, I felt that we had unfinished work. And uh, a lot of people close to me thought, why well, I should uh, do it again. I had some qualms, but uh, uh, those folks carried the day, and, and, and those people love me a lot. So uh, the bottom line is I made a bad decision. But, uh, again, it was, it, was, it was great to be at, back out there and talking about the things I wanted to talk about and, and, and hoping that Maryland would not go so far left, but, but it did. And, right. and that was for me that you know that was a, certainly a line in the sand that the political run had been terrific, but uh, that was enough of, of politics as far as that end of politics, uh, and that's when I started writing the books. Sure. So we have a few generic questions, but there's one um, issue with one of your positions that I've always been curious about. Um, so mm-hmm. your a position on abortion isn't totally clear to me. I was wondering, do you identify as personally pro-life, but not in a legislative way? Yes. Or would you, yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. Well, yeah. because the reason is uh, most of the issues uh, that are relevant today uh, are uh, uh, my, my position is you would call pro-life. Yeah. But I'm certainly not across the board pro-life in any respect. But the issues that uh, that you see, uh, and, and by the way, these issues were more front burner a couple of years ago, particularly 5, 10, 15 years ago than they are today. Uh, you know, the ability to protest outside of an abortion clinic, uh, late-term abortions, which I oppose, taxpayer finance abortions, which I oppose, uh, very uh, liberalized Medicaid statutes around the country, which I oppose. Maryland has one. Um, so... Uh, uh, parental consent, uh, which I support. So a lot of these issues, although not central to the the issue, are are, are around the issue. Mm. You know, so since Roe versus Wade, most of the debate has been around these peripheral. Now certainly they're abortion related issues, yeah. and I would say um, clear with regard to these issues, more, more pro life. Sure. But, so let's but, say, but again, I, but, but again, yeah. certainly, uh, again, uh, 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 I had supported the uh, a major pro-choice bill in Maryland as a member of the legislature. You know, as far as uh, basically codifying Roe versus Wade, and I did support that. Mm-hmm. Let's say because we're only one justice away from it. If, if Roe v. Wade were thrown out, would then 
you have a different outlook on that in terms of? It's interesting. No, I, no, I, no. I voted my conscience every time. I, I've, I've, sure. I voted what I thought was right. Uh, I've, I've done. Uh, again, I've had people, you know, in my office, and, and t- I've literally in the state legislature, I have people in my office. Uh, um, a lady, uh, I guess, a, a wife who had been raped, and her husband said, "Yeah, she has to have that baby." And and I I remember this and and yeah I disagree with that, <laughs> uh, but I understood you know sort of the consistency of that position if you know what I mean. Sure. Uh, but I could not. I just I I, I I hope that most politicians these days, besides you know, those on the on the far hard left, would agree that uh, uh, we've had too many abortions. And uh, and 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 a better society means less abortions. I would hope that's the case, particularly with regard to you know partial birth abortions and these these what you see these days sort uh, of from the bar really hard left. I think it turns people off. I I certainly hope it does. No, definitely, it's an extreme position when they when they support that. Um, so with your state in particular, and I guess it might apply to a few others, um, there might be some leaning Republican or Democrat, but because there's so many independents in a lot of places, um, it makes it more up for grabs, even some place, you know, like Massachusetts. But in Maryland, with Democrats having a clear majority, it's hard to imagine so many of them not showing up to vote, yet occasionally, obviously, Republicans do win when statistically yeah, that shouldn't be plausible. Right. What do you make of that? Um, it's interesting. Um, you, you've sort of captured the formula for us to win. Uh, when Governor Hogan won, when I won, when any Republican can win statewide, you tend to have a set of circumstances, and those circumstances are, in no particular order, a political environment uh, that uh, does not excite the Democratic base. And you have a, uh, a pretty popular Republican who's run a good race. And... Um, You've had that Republican uh, being able to access enough money where the message can get out that despite the fact it's a Republican and we typically don't go there, uh, this person's okay. <laughs> you know, it's not the end of the world. Literally, that's sort of the message. You, the messaging you have to make in certain right. parts of the state. So, and then um, if if the Republican base, which is small, but so I should say the conservative base, which includes this, this sort of Trump Reagan uh, crossover Democrat working class base, if they're motivated to come out, then you can win. Mm-hmm. Then, then you can win. Uh, it, it really depends a lot on the Washington suburbs. Uh, and and the Baltimore suburbs, the Washington suburbs being you know, left to center, uh, it's where Democrats go to get their votes. And the Baltimore suburbs, despite the fact there are more Democrats than Republicans, far more, but that's where Republicans go to get their votes. Interesting. So on a on a more national scale, um, what issues concern you the most moving forward uh, for the country? Um, the racial divide. Um, persist, persistent, deep poverty, multi-generational poverty, um, and and uh, Ill, ill-serving the underclass in this country. Um, certainly, the opioid epidemic, which we live in my family. My wife runs drug courts. She's a drug court prosecutor in Anne Arundel County, Maryland. Uh, we help bring drug courts to Maryland. I believe in drug. We talked about criminal justice reform earlier. I right. believe in, in, in drug courts, but the opioid epidemic, the um, 
seemingly unlimited desire of Americans to get high uh, is concerns me. Um, so they would certainly be be two. I, I think the third would be the, the this this weird anti countercultural sense with some millennials on campus that it's okay to shut down speech. It's 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 uh, that they need safe zones and trigger warnings and speech codes and all this sort of ridiculous, absolutely ludicrous stuff that you hear going on college campuses these days. But it's all about shutting down speech. It's all about shutting down dissent. It's all about uh, silencing conservative thought. And it's something that is of great concern to me. I talk about it a lot. I I I, uh, I give a lot of speeches about this movement on campus. It's very dangerous. It's impacted a lot of young people. A lot of young people do not believe in markets or capitalism or freedom of speech these days, and that's mm-hmm. very, very disquieting. No, that's uh, that's something which concerns me a lot too, because I know from experience, um, a lot of these people, they'll say they're you know for free free speech and all, but if you disagree with them, then suddenly it's a whole different tune, and that's not how. Yeah, it's supposed it, to work. they're for, as long as they're in their comfort level. I mean, yeah. it, it's I don't know who taught these uh, a lot of these young kids that they're they have a right to go through life um, in a pleasant way, <laughs> <laughs> undisturbed. Uh, with safe zones and 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 Twinkies and and uh, you know you only know a Twinkie. Oh, they still make Twinkies. I don't think they do anymore. But no, donuts do. or coloring books, whatever it happens to be. But the bottom line is, this term snowflakes come about to describe right. this sort of uh, countercultural mindset. When I was growing up, liberals believed in speech and dissent and protest, and that's how the anti-war movement occurred, and the women's movement, and 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 uh, the civil rights movement. And now today, the left on campus wants to shut down everything they disagree with, and that's just wrong. And, I, and my word to um, uh, those right of center students on campus is: uh, do not indulge, do not, uh, be, do not be silenced. Confront them, and that's the only mm-hmm. way that uh, we're going to preserve our, our our culture. Quite frankly, no, that's uh, that's good advice. So before our Closing question. I do have a bit of a, a fun question. Um, so you're actually the second governor I've talked to who's had, who's had something of an acting career. Uh, you <laughs> appeared on an episode of The Wire, which uh, is, of course, considered by many to be a fantastic show. Uh, what was that experience like so playing a state trooper guarding the governor? Yeah, guarding me. Uh, <laughs> guarding yourself, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty – it was fun. And I had a ball. I love a huge fan of the show. The, the show was – Gave a lot. By the way, a, a lot of detractors of the show hated the fact that what, what it depicted with regard to Baltimore. I liked the show because it was realistic and real, mm-hmm. and but it also gave young actors, a lot of young actors, an opportunity uh, to break into the business. Uh, I had uh, I think nine words, or nine or eleven uh, spoken words, uh, as the state trooper outside my my office. Um, and anybody that followed me around politics at the time sort of got got these inside jokes. Um, uh, I stopped the mayor of Baltimore uh, who wanted to come see me, the, the Republican governor, to ask for money for his failing city schools, <laughs> so which was really a, a, a play of what was happening in real life with in my in my real life. So uh, it was uh, uh, humorous for some. 
Uh, people bring it up to me all the time. Uh, my limited cameo, but I had a lot of fun doing it. Oh, that's great. So I know you talked about uh, just releasing a new book. Is there anything else you're working on, whether it's um, as a lawyer in terms of your career in general, and is there any chance you'll take a crack at another elected office at some point? Well, um, a couple things. One, the book is uh, doing, came out very hot, uh, number one, on one of the, uh, Amazon's political categories, um, which got a lot of attention. It's, it's entitled Bet You Didn't See That One Coming. It describes the uh, last year of the Obama administration, the first year of the Trump administration, and the, the contrast and why Trump, how this occurred, how it could possibly occur. Uh, so I really enjoyed writing this book, and I'm enjoying running around the country, lecturing about it, doing book signings and all that. Again, it's my fourth book, and, and I'm really having a lot of fun with this one. As far as my future, uh, unknown at present, um, uh, uh, certainly I'm not going to run again in Maryland, not for elected office, but if if the right uh, appointed position came up in, in, in Washington here, I would – I might take a look at it. Um, we've had some preliminary discussions, but nothing to report. Uh, we'll see. I, I have uh, an 18-year-old, a 14-year-old, lots of games to attend, a very involved, active wife. Uh, we support a lot of uh, conservative and Republican causes and a lot of charitable causes as well. So my life is very full and uh, very satisfying. Sure. Well, I hope to see you, you know, run or serve in some capacity. And um well, thank you very much. I appreciate it very much. It's been a it's been a great ride, a ride I'm proud of. And again, I should mention as well as I run around the country doing political speeches, I'm also uh, talking about the criminal justice reform. And, and sometimes mm -hmm. I'm invited to very liberal venues where I give my message, and 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 people are surprised. I guess they don't hate me. So <laughs> it's pretty funny sometimes. But uh, in any event, I think that's again an issue as part of my legacy. I have a clinic dedicated to the issue at uh, Columbus School of Law. Uh, that's the uh, law school at Catholic University. And mm -hmm. so, again, I'm active in various causes that uh, I believe in. Sure. Now, actually, before I let you go, I um, I just remembered, if you ever saw the show Oz, I think that was supposed to take place in Maryland. Did you ever hear anything about I did not. your state being the location for that or, or no? No, but when they filmed Annapolis and was it in Philadelphia, I got very upset. But <laughs> no, that, uh, from what I remember, that wasn't a great movie anyway. Yeah, what the heck? No. But I wasn't happy at the time. But because really, as a governor, your chief marketer, and that's why the Preakness is such a great day. It's been on my mind obviously uh, this week. Uh, it's the day you get to market Maryland to the world. It's the most fun day to be governor. No, definitely. I, I watch all three of those races, so. Um... That's a good one. That's well, a great it's one. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, once again, uh, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Take care, my friend. Bye bye. You too. That was Governor Bob Ehrlich. Uh, we had a really wide-ranging discussion there. A lot of good issues were discussed. A lot of topics were covered. Uh, we are still working out our guests for next week, so stay tuned for that. Um, if you want to follow the show, we have a new Twitter handle to get the word out there. I uh, finally gave in and used that, and it's been going well so far. So be sure to follow at Reagan Worldwide. That's at Reagan Worldwide. You'll get updates about the show and all sorts of interesting uh, conservative commentary and other issues. So uh, until next time, uh, this has been A.J. Bruno uh, for the A.J. Bruno Show. And I'm signing off for now. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>